From the U.S. Army, a national touring band and rock radio programmer, it's Nick Summers. And this is The Right Side of Rock. Here's Nick Summers. Have you ever wondered where some of your favorite rock songs, what their origins were? How the bands that performed them wrote them? How they came up with the idea? What's the story behind the songs? Some of the most popular rock songs, uh, at least to me, like N.I.B. from Black Sabbath. The song first appeared uh, as the fourth track on the band's 1970 debut album, Black Sabbath. The lyrics are in the first person and from the point of view of Lucifer. Ooh. Bassist Geezer Butler composed the song's lyrics and said the song was about the devil falling in love and totally changing and then becoming a good person. <laughs> okay, sure. The song's title has been long a source of speculation. Some fans over the years interpreting the title meaning Nativity in Black or Name in Blood. In the early 90s, Geezer Butler, by the way, plays bass for Black Sabbath and even helped out Ozzy a lot on his solo stuff, claimed the title was actually in reference to drummer Bill Ward's beard at the time. See? Do you see what I mean? You find out the origins of a song, it's like, did you ever think it would be about a drummer's beard? His bandmates felt it looked like pen nib. Must be an English thing. According to Butler, originally the title was just nib, which was Bill's beard. When I wrote NIB, I couldn't think of a title for the song, so I just called it nib after Bill's beard. To make it more intriguing, I put punctuation marks in there to make it NIB. By the time it got to America, they translated it to Nativity in Black. I mean, it's just, it's kind of silly. Some people say my love cannot be true. Breakup song, Greg Kin Band. Yeah, that song. The uh 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 part. You know why they do that in there? Couldn't think of any lyrics. Went in, recorded what they had. 
he figured a lot of times what vocalists do is they'll record a dummy track. It's it's not to be used. More often than not, it's just a guide. So when the band goes in, because most bands record, you know, their parts separately. You lay down the drum tracks and, you know, and you go from there and you build the song up. Usually back in the old days. Nowadays, everything can be done on the computer and pieced together. But in the old days, they actually spliced tape. They flew in vocals from another machine, which means that you'd record these big gang vocals on another recorder, and then you'd press play at the time that it needed to be when it came up in that song. I mean, they did all kinds of tricks before the digital age. But Greg Kinn explained once that he he didn't have any lyrics for those parts of the song. Well, the producer of the song thought it was kind of cool sounding, so they just went with it. He laid down the dummy track. Didn't have the vocals completed. Went off on his da ah 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 part, and the producer heard it and thought, "I kind of like that. I think we should leave that." So it's really an unfinished song. And then you've got the serious side of things. ACDC, their original singer Bon Scott. Well, actually, that's not true. Their original singer was Dave Evans, but they didn't really go anywhere with Dave. They were just a club band. Bon Scott joined, and they started to really pick up some huge success in the United States. The first being Highway to Hell. Well, Bon Scott died shortly after the album was released in the tour. They were about to go in and start working on the new album. They didn't have a name for it yet. Then Bon Scott passed away. With the family blessing, Bon Scott, ACDC decided to carry on. They dedicated and they decided their their next album without him should be called Back in Black Tribute. Well, that was shortened by the record label to just Back in Black. So Back in Black is actually a tribute to Bon Scott. Origins of the most popular song never released as a single, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. They began recording this thing in December 1970. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were spending some time at a remote cottage in Wales following Led Zeppelin's fifth American concert tour. According to Page, he wrote the music over a long period, the first part coming at that cottage. And Page always had kept a cassette recorder around. The idea of Stairway to Heaven came together from bits of taped music. The first attempt at the lyrics was written by Robert Plant next to an evening log fire at Headley Grange. And it was partly spontaneously improvised by Page. He went on to claim a huge percentage of the lyrics were written there and then. Jimmy Page was just hanging back, strumming the chords. Robert Plant had a pencil and paper. The complete studio recording was released on Led Zeppelin 4 in November of 1971. The band's record label, Atlantic Records, wanted to issue it as a single. They wanted to chop it down. As you know, it's a very long song. The band's manager, Peter Grant, refused. said, we are not going to edit this song. The record label refused to release it as a single, but it became such a popular song. It's one of the most successful songs never released officially as a single. According to music journalist Stephen Davis, it's often rated as one of the greatest American rock songs of all time, quote. Page even recalled, quote, I knew it was good, but I knew it was going to be almost like an anthem, but I knew it was a bit of a gem, for sure. 
It continues to top radio lists of the greatest rock songs ever. It's also the biggest selling single piece of sheet music in rock history. Did you know that? Clocking up an average of 15,000 copies sold yearly. Over a million copies of just the sheet music have been sold alone. The term Stairway to Heaven actually has its origins from the Bible. Genesis 28. There you have it. There's a lady who showed All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to heaven Smoke on the Water, Deep Purple, Ian Gillen, Richie Blackmore, Roger Glover, classic lineup. There's been a lot of speculation about that song. It's it's a song that definitely tells a story. It's the story of a fire. I thought I'd revisit the Nick Summers archives and go back to an interview I did about 12 years ago when I was doing radio. No, it was probably about 14 years ago in Milwaukee. And I had Ian Gillen as a guest on my show. Here's a portion of that interview and him explaining the origins of of smoke on the water. This is the right side of rock. And it is quite the honor to have with me Ian Gillen. How you doing, sir? All right, Nick. I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I'm by the seaside in New Hampshire. Oh, are you? Okay, how's the weather? It's fish and chips weather. Yeah. <laughs> fish and chips. Or cats and dogs, I should say. <laughs> okay, I got you. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have some fun. We're going to ask you a couple of true or false questions. Are you ready? Yeah. It's in the form of a quiz. Quiz for Ian. All right. Smoke on the water was really all made up, and it actually never happened. True or false? Oh, that's false. Okay, well, go ahead. You have to tell everybody. Montreux, we just headlined the Montreux Jazz Festival on its 40th anniversary a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when we were there in 1971 in November to record the album Machine Head, it was the end of the season. Frank Zappa was playing a show, the last show of the season, and we were going to move into the casino the next day into the casino ballroom to start recording our record. And uh, somebody came in during the show and over my right shoulder went to, uh, they shot a flare gun into the city. Now this was a wooden building, an old two, 300 year old wooden building. And uh, the fire caught hold quite rapidly and uh, everyone was excavated from the building. And uh, we went down the road and watched the thing burn to the ground. Um, and the mist, the, the wind from the mountains came down and blew the flames and the smoke across Lake Geneva. And Roger Glover wrote down on a napkin, Smoke on the Water, as the title. As we got to the end, we moved on to the Grand Hotel where we had to complete the records, actually make the recording. The engineer said on the day before we finished, you, you know, you're still one song short of an album. And so we got out this tape that we'd made on the first day, which I called the Dan Dan song, and that we decided to do a biographical story of the making of Machine Head. And so hence, we all came out to Montreux on the late Geneva shoreline, some stupid with a flare gun, burned the place to the ground, etc., etc. So it's a biographical story, and uh, it's all true. And it's one of the most famous rock songs of all time. It's got to be pretty cool to be involved in something like that. It is. It's very cool, and I think the thing is, it's just so simple. Um, I always remember when we started learning the blues, and it was just three chords, and, you know, nobody could play. We were using biscuit tins and knitting needles for drums and acoustic guitars, and but we felt that we could play because we mastered three chords, and uh, I think that's what uh, one of the things about Smoke is that it's very accessible, and it's a, it's a good story, and uh, it's a great chorus, and it's a fantastic riff. 
Yes, it is. All right, most memorable moment on tour is when uh, Richie Blackmore forgot the opening riff to smoke on the water. True or false? <laughs> True. True! You can't be serious. <laughs> no, I think he might have just been being, you know, Richie Blackmore. Okay. Was he difficult? Yeah, you know, but I mean, he was, I think probably as life went on, he changed a bit. I used to room with Richie, and he had a great sense of humor when we were kids. We used to get on great and be up to all kinds of nonsense. But I think as we, uh, as Purple broke up, we went away and we had our own, I had the Gillen Band and he had Rainbow. When we got back together again, he had changed quite a lot. And I think he had this sort of personality that he developed in a way where he, they call it control freakery, but I think it was more like probably megalomania. He, he wouldn't listen to anyone um, at all, and he just wanted to be in complete control over what everyone was playing. And I noticed that, you know, John Law, the Pace, and Roger Glover, their playing standards went down and uh, became more of a backing group for Richie than, um, you know, five minds walking, working together to make some uh, exciting stuff. And so, yeah, he became difficult. Um, but, you know, it's a long time ago now, and when you look back on it, I remember the good times, really. I just don't and we all wish Richie well. We hope he's happy doing his uh, medieval stuff. He was always into that, even with Deep Purple. He's, he was always playing green sleeves and whatever. So uh, we hope he's happy now. Okay, very cool. That's, that's a very candid answer. I appreciate that. In this episode, we're exploring the origins of some of your most famous rock songs ever. Coming up, I've got another Gene Simmons update. I know, I know, I know, I know. But sometimes the guy is just all over the place. He made news again. We've talked about it in previous episodes. His comments about rock is dead. I happen to agree with him in his assessment and his reasoning behind it. But there's some new revelations. Now, during the whole COVID nonsense and our ridiculous reaction to it, and still continues to this day. Gene Simmons basically said, in a nutshell, I'll paraphrase, screw your rights, everybody needs to get jabbed. And then he came up with a ridiculous scenario and an analogy about, you know, being in a car accident, wearing your seatbelts. And it's like, okay, <laughs> whatever. And there are times where it's like, you know, I, I agree so much with what, what Gene Simmons says as a human being. I mean, he's just, he's got a great story. Immigrant from Israel. Mother was in the concentration camp, saw her family die. Uh, it's just, it's really a great, it's a true American success story. And Gene Simmons has always been very patriotic. He does a lot of great things quietly. If you can believe that, he does. A lot of charitable things he does on the side. He doesn't broadcast it. And he believes in the American dream. He's lived it. He came here as a poor child at the age of six, seven, whatever it was, couldn't speak a lick of English, learned it from watching TV, and now he's in one of the biggest bands in music history. Say what you want about him. You can't deny that. Over 100 million albums sold worldwide. That's no small feat. Well, he gave an interview late last week. And just when I thought I didn't like, as, as Liz Calloway says, Liz Calloway show with Nick Summers, we, we talk about it. She's She's got a couple of guys that, that she uh, really, really appreciates and and 
loves their opinion and their take on things. And every once in a while, she says, I got to break up with them. And that's just her way of saying she disagrees with them. Well, I broke up with Gene Simmons. Our bromance was over. Now it might be back on. I always had a sneaking suspicion that he leaned conservative, maybe libertarian. He's never really come out and said it. He's he said some ridiculous things about Joe Biden. He said some crazy things about Trump. But then, you know, those are all, as was quoted to me at one time, hot takes. He says things just to get a reaction out of you. I also think that his partner and his bandmate, Paul Stanley, who's, I think, extremely liberal, I think he has a little bit of an influence over him at times. I think he sits him down and says, listen, Gene, you got to shut up. And that's no small feat getting Gene to be quiet. But he said some things that made me think, wait a minute, I'm going back to maybe being in his camp. I'll share that with you coming up in just a couple. Hold on. The right side of rock. Here's the final cut. Okay, now, before we get to Gene Simmons changed his mind again, I wanted to share something with you just on a personal note. I think this is hilarious. I've got a guy who works on all my guitars. And this isn't, I'm not being braggadocious when I say I'm a bit of a collector. I've been playing music professionally. Uh, well, it was my only source of income, a really part of my, uh, you know, like in my 20s and, and a little bit into my 30s. So over all of that time and up until even now, I've amassed over like 80 guitars. And no, they're not all PV. I've got uh, I've got some you know I've got some BC riches. I've Telecasters. I love I love Fender Telecasters. A few Strats, a couple of Gibsons that I really like. I've got some other strange ones as well. I've got an old Kramer. I've got one of the new Charvels. Needless to say, when I have a problem with one of them, I can do some basic stuff. But when it gets into the wiring, I call a guy. I get a guy for that. His his name is Steve Wheeler. Well, I gave him this project. It's a Washburn. It's a Paul Stanley Starfire. And it looks like a Firebird. For those of you who know like what a Gibson reverse Firebird looks like, that's what this is. It's it's Paul Stanley was uh, endorsing a Washburn for a while. And I, I like I love Gibson reverse Firebirds. And this one actually plays better than my Gibson. But I didn't like how the pickup sounded. So I had it to do what I call a simple pickup swap. But it's wiring and soldering. And I ain't doing it. Steve Wheeler, he works on all my guitars. Great guy. So I get this text. (laughs) It's the funniest text I've ever received. Not just from him, but I think anybody. And I wanted to read it to you because it's hilarious. (laughs) Here we go. Picture this, South Carolina. A fine morning. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. By all rights, a perfect Sunday morning. You open the black guitar case. You have just entered the summer zone. A simple pickup swap, he says. Should go quick and easy, he says. But you do not know the perils of the summer zone. The journey was long and arduous and full of numerous pitfalls. Alas, I have emerged out of the other side of the summer zone, tattered and weary of my journey, yet successful in my endeavors. Unceremoniously, I retired to my safety corner, like a dem who lost in the 2016 election. Shaking and in need of a calming beverage, triumphantly, I will smile as I pass my story through the generations of unsuspecting luthiers, that's a guy who builds and or fixes guitars, that may in the future encounter the summer zone. Is that not the best text ever to get from any repairman in your life? Steve Wheeler, you do a tremendous job on all of my equipment, and I trust my most expensive prized possessions hanging on my wall with you, kind sir. Steve Wheeler, hey, you got a guitar and need some help? Let me know. I'll put you two in touch. All right, Gene Simmons. Once again, uh, the guy vacillates between this and, hey, you have no rights. You need to get jabbed. Well, he did it again. Just when I thought I was done and I'd broken up with him, 
comes this. This is at the end of an interview. He's giving an interview with somebody in England. Uh, as they're set to play there, uh, let's see, it was back on Friday, June 10th. So this is only about a week old. He says, what are you watching or reading or listening to on the weekends? Gene says, I've been through different phases. I read books voraciously, but that's gone down. I'm more fascinated by people, especially people who are planet movers in charge of life as we know it. The Buffets, the Elon Musks of the world. They march to a beat of their own drum, and I'm curious about what makes them tick. I've been rereading some of Anne Rand's writer and philosopher books. She was another singular person who talked about individuals taking responsibility and not looking for government to be a babysitter. (gasps) That sounds very conservative and or libertarian of Eugene. He goes on to say, quote, in a free world, there's still a socialist streak. Once we're pulled from our mother's teat. Some of us want the government to reattach us to that teat. Guaranteed health care, guaranteed housing, guaranteed everything. I've always been against big government and having somebody who changes your diapers for you. And there you have it. Thank you, Gene Simmons, for coming back to your senses. I know manners and I'm not too clean, but I know what I like. If you know what I mean, what do people say? Well, Mr. Can't you see? It don't mean spit to me. Want a lot of woman with a lot of love. What well, is in, but it's plain to see. It don't mean spit to me. Can't you see? It don't mean spit to me. Yeah.